Well, happy birthday, West Ridge. Listen, just pretend to be happy, okay? Because I'm not here that often anymore. So, and Now, if, you've been, if you're a regular, you've been around a few years, I know what you're thinking. It's not a snowstorm. It's not a holiday. Uh, it's not Time Change Sunday, although actually I think Darren messed up on the calendar. He thought this was Time Change Sunday, and that's why he had me speaking. What's Gordon doing here? Just your lucky day. You know, Westridge, you've grown up to be uh, a very fine young adult. But I knew you when you were just about this tall. I was looking back through my records this week, thinking about today, and um, it was the fall of 2003 when Pastor Darren asked me to come up here uh, and lead this church in a capital campaign to raise the money to get out of the community college and to eventually end up here. And I, I remember it very distinctly. For two reasons. One, when I came up, I was surprised that we were meeting in a decrepit old farmhouse. I thought, wow, this doesn't look good. Two, the small group of leaders who were there, and some of them are here today, had that deer-in-the-headlights look in their face, like, where are we going to get all this money? And I said, you're going to give it. You're, you, you're going to give it. People in this room, you're going to give it. They go, wow, that's not the way we thought it worked. And uh, to be honest, uh, I didn't know you'd be around here 20 years. But here we are today. Then about a decade ago, I got in the regular teaching pastor rotation. And I could tell you lots of story, harrowing stories of uh, time on the tollway coming out here, snowstorms, blizzards, ice storms, road construction, truck drivers texting, running me off the road. I would get here, my blood pressure would be 190 over 110. But my favorite story in driving out here, the 45 miles from the West Loop where we live to this spot, was, uh, I, think it was in a July, I think it was July, we got out on the Kennedy Expressway, we went about five of the 45 miles, and we came to a dead stop. I mean, a dead stop. Turns out, there was a traffic fatality earlier in the morning, and they still had the expressway closed down investigating it. I mean, this was the kind of stop where people are getting out of their cars and looking around. And you know, when people get out of the car on the Kennedy Expressway, that's not a good sign. So I, you know, Pastor Darren's here, so I call him, I give him the bad news, and I thought, well, you know, things happen. Darren, I'm stuck, I'm not going to make it first service, I'll likely make it for the second service, you'll figure it out. This was Pastor Darren. No, you can make it. No, we're going we're gonna to rearrange the whole service. We're going to do everything that we do up front, and we're going to save the last 20 minutes for you because he knows I never go over 20 minutes. So I'm still sitting on the expressway. Finally, we inch around on the shoulder of the road, but I'm still a long ways away. And like the signs are saying, 30 minutes to Randall Road. And I'm, gi- I'm giving Darren the bad news. And he's going, no, you can make it in 15. Come on, you're, you're, you're going to be able to do this. And I'm thinking, I don't, yeah, I can't control this traffic thing. So finally, I get off Randall Road, give Darren the news. He says, I'll meet you in the parking lot with a microphone. <laughs> and don't think you're going to have time to go to the bathroom. 
I thought, you know, here's my kind, compassionate founding pastor advocating that I break every traffic law in the state of Illinois and trying to control my bodily foots. And I'm supposed to walk down the aisle, hit, hit this point, and speak words of life to you. But that's the way it happened. Uh, I have to tell you, before I get into the message, that, you know, of every place I've ever served, this place has been the most fulfilling to me. And it's been because of you. And, and the three characteristics I thought of that makes this place special is your humor. You even, sometimes it's perverted because you laugh at my stuff. Your acceptance and your authenticity. And I want to talk to you about authenticity this morning. Uh, but my birthday comment to you is, I'm grateful that God has allowed me to be a small thread in the tapestry called Westridge. It's been a great privilege in my life. Thank you. I don't know if it's new or not, but um, the word spin has come to have a particular meaning in our vocabulary. Usually it's used in a political context. And I think it refers to bending the truth, shaping the story to be most beneficial to the person doing the spinning. Now, the important thing to spinners is not the truth. It's shading the message to what the listener wants to hear. It's telling you what you want to hear. And while politicians may be able to employ professional spinners, I suspect they're not the only ones spinning. I'm guessing there are plenty of amateur spinners out there too. Even worse, I'm guessing there are some church spinners. People pretending to be always happy, always moral, always trouble-free. People whose only thought is, what would Jesus do? 24-7, 365. They're always humming a praise chorus. They're always ready to help someone in need. They're chirpy, they're cheerful, they're chippy. When I was a full-time pastor, um, I was always reluctant to tell people I was a pastor. Not because I was ashamed of it, but the minute I told them I was a pastor, the relationship went artificial. Just like that. I remember one particular time, um, I was playing golf and I got paired up with a stranger. And we played a few holes, and he was swearing at every bad shot he hit. He was throwing his clubs, it was this, this, this. About the fifth tee box, he asked me what I did. I said, I'm a pastor. What what do you do? I'm a pastor. Well, by the seventh tee box, he was singing Amazing Grace as we waited for the foursome in front of us. And I guess I always hated that because I never thought being a pastor made me a better person than anyone else on the planet. All this stands in stark contrast to integrity. Integrity is about holding our lives together so that we're the same person inside and out, backward and forward. Integrity goes beyond being honest or telling the truth. It's living a transparent life. Now, before I get into the meat of this message, let me just tell you what the transparent life is not. It's not spilling your guts on everyone you meet. That's what counselors and confidants and, for that matter, spouses are for. The transparent life is owning our own stories, not pretending to be someone else. 
not spinning our story to be smarter than you are, dumber than you are, richer than you are, poorer than you are, better than you are, worse than you are. Integrity is owning the story God has given us to write. Transparency is the release of all the masks that we're tempted to wear. It's not having one mask for one occasion, another mask for another occasion. It's being comfortable inside the skin God has given us. The end of pretense for ego's sake. I love this old story about the woman who brought her son to see Gandhi because he was eating too much sugar. And despite her vigilance, the boy could not seem to give up sugar. The woman asked Gandhi if he would speak to the boy about his problem. Gandhi replied, no, but bring him back in a week. And so in a week, the woman returned and once again petitioned Gandhi to speak to her son about his habit of eating too much sugar. This time, Gandhi welcomed the boy and had a discussion with him about giving up sugar. And the boy seemed to be genuinely affected by Gandhi's advice, and the woman thanked him deeply. As she turned to leave, she asked one final question. Why did you see him today and not last week? And Gandhi responded, because last week I was eating too much sugar. You can't lead someone where you haven't been. Living a life of integrity is harder than it sounds. And here's a newsflash for you chippy-chirpy people, you know who you are. Even godly people struggle. And perhaps one of the most poignant examples of integrity in all the Bible is found in the biography of King David. There were so many starkly different chapters to his life. Just think about it. Chapter 1 is the shepherd boy who had faith in God to slay Goliath. Chapter 2 is the warrior who led his army into battle. Chapter 3 is the faithful friend to Jonathan. Chapter 4 is the respected servant to King Saul, even though he didn't deserve it. Chapter 5 is the sacrificial giver who gave out of his own personal treasury to raise money for the temple. And then chapter 6 is the lying, murdering, adulterous David. Here's how the Bible describes it. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her and she came to him and he slept with her. But it gets worse. Later, David arranged to have Uriah killed and went on about his life as if it wouldn't make a difference if he was one person in private and another person in public. And so God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David and to point out what David was currently denying in his life and that is he'd become someone that he didn't want to admit to himself. Dangerous territory to be in. And so God used the prophet Nathan to show David a part of his story that he didn't want to see. Now, to his credit, David received Nathan's rebuke and changed his ways. But in the process of all this happen, happening, David's life started to spin into chaos. Have you ever had chapters in your life where you, you'd have to label the chapter chaos? You know, we're going, this is chaos week for us, for Reese and I. We made a decision a few months ago to relocate to St. Louis. Chicago just wasn't having enough riots for us. So, 
and this is actually the week that we're moving. And this whole process has been chaotic. It's like, are you kidding me? Nothing's going right. This deal's falling apart. This person's not doing what they say. It got to the point where it was just, you had to laugh about it. And sometimes that's our life. For David, it was rather serious. The immediate consequence of this was the death of the son born to he and Bathsheba. How much better to own our own stories from the beginning? I would suggest to you that like David, we live our lives a chapter at a time. I want to highlight a few of those chapters in our journey. Chapter number one is owning the hand we've been dealt. We are not created equal. God loves us equally, but we're not created equally. The hand that we've been dealt has to do with those things in our life over which we had no control. And those things aren't the same for everyone. And so integrity begins with owning the hand we've been dealt. Just like in a card game. Not everyone is dealt the same hand. And you may be saying about your life, how come I couldn't got a a different card? This is not a winning hand. Integrity is accepting the hand we've been dealt and making the best of it. I had nothing to do with the country in which I was born, the specific time in history I was born, to whom I was born, the language I was taught growing up, the socioeconomic conditions in which I was raised. I had nothing to do with the physical health or lack thereof when I was born. I had nothing to do with the educational opportunities afforded to me in early childhood. And neither did you. For example, I was born with allergies and asthma. And I lived on a dirt road in front of a hay field with a dad who chain-smoked in a small house. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't breathe half the time. So you've got, you've got your story about the hand you've been dealt. Let me just comment on one that we all have in common, and then we'll move to chapter 2. To begin with, we were dealt our parents. Now, you can pretend they were perfect and perpetuate the cover-up, or you can smolder in an anger that just won't go away, or you can own the hand you were dealt. We were stuck with whomever we got, and there's nothing to do but to get on with our stories. Whether your childhood was a gift or a nightmare, all you can do today is own it and forgive when and where it's necessary. Our parents are the only parents God will ever give us. And the raw material we got from them is the only grist we will ever have for grinding out the rest of our story. Chapter 2. Own our wounds. King David certainly had his wounds. He was hunted down like a fugitive in the early part of his career. His best friend on earth, Jonathan, Jonathan, was killed. Sometimes, somewhere in our stories, we're bound to get hurt. The odds are that pain will grab us in its claws, pin us down, tear at our flesh, and pierce our hearts. And whether a loss or a betrayal caused our wound, most of us are wounded forever wounded, and to disown our wounds is to be untrue to ourselves. One thing about the authenticity of Westridge that I love is there are no preening superstar pastors up on a pedestal. 
And that's pretty rare in America today. If you happen to rub shoulders with a superstar pastor this week, quote me to them, okay? There's only one way down from a pedestal. We're not preening superstar pastors on a pedestal. What we are is what Henry Nouwen said should be our highest aspirational title in life, and that is to be called a wounded healer. If I could pick any title to which I would aspire, it would be that, the wounded healer. C.S. Lewis writes in A Grief Observed about the death of his wife, I shall walk again, but I shall never be biped. A bit less intellectual but relevant, Don Draper says in an early episode of Mad Men, nostalgia is the pain from an old wound. We can't move on from a suffering chapter of our story without carrying the wounds with us into the next chapter. The pain of one chapter becomes the scar of the next. And forgiveness doesn't take away the scar. We own our chapters and our wounds in order to better help other hurting people overcome theirs. We're the wounded healers. Chapter number three. We own our dark side. So here's David. The Bible actually calls David a man after God's own heart. That's quite a compliment, wouldn't you say? Someone who had a pure devotion to God. Someone who could step out with great faith and generosity. Someone who could commit adultery and murder. If we're going to write an honest story... We've got to factor the dark side in an inventory of ourselves. Because good people are always a mix of faith and fear, good and bad, virtue and vice. I've got mine, and you've got yours. It's much more fun for me to talk about yours instead of mine. I'm, to be honest with you, I'm always a little, actually, literally frightened by church spinner types who pretend to never have struggled with their dark side or to propose to you that they've overcome it completely. If a man like David struggled with his dark side, I'm a little skeptical if you don't. Let's not pretend we're the exception when we own our story. When we own our dark side, confess it when appropriate, we free ourselves from the energy drain of trying to be someone we're not. That's very tiring. And we disarm the dark side by bringing it out into the light, not by covering it up. Chapter 4. We own our commitments. We start new chapters of the story of our life by making significant new commitments. We are, in fact, the sum total of our commitments. If we don't have the courage to own our commitments and the courage to make new commitments, then our story loses its narrative and begins to drift. And eventually, we lose touch with who we are, which is perhaps the greatest tragedy in our life. So I don't know, maybe today, maybe on the 20th anniversary, it's a good time to look at the commitments that you're no longer owning. Maybe it's a commitment to your spouse, your children, your financial stewardship, your job, this church, your friends. Maybe you need to get back to those commitments and own them. You've made commitments and keeping them 
is what creates integrity. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe there are new commitments that you need to make today. Maybe there are some new chapters that you need to start writing. You need to get out of the chaos chapter into a new chapter. Maybe you need to make a commitment for a brand new you. I think having a story to write is why we were born. Own your story. Dedicate it to the glory of God. That's a fulfilling life. I believe that which ultimately made David such a role model was he never gave up on the fact that God never gave up on him. So don't ever forget that. Wherever you find yourself, maybe in some places that you never thought you'd be, things that you never thought you'd do, there isn't anything you can do or say that will cause God to give up on you. So here's the way we end the story. Psalm 51 was written after the prophet Nathan had confronted David about his adultery and murder. David writes this. Soak me in your laundry and I'll come out clean. Scrub me and I'll have a snow white life. Tune me in to foot-tapping songs. Set these once broken bones to dancing. Don't look too close for blemishes. Give me a clean bill of health. God, make a fresh start in me. Shape a Genesis week from the chaos of my life. I was uh, talking to a retired pastor at a convention, and we were just chit-chatting. He was quite a bit older than I. And he said, you know, uh, decades ago, I started a church, a new church, just outside Las Vegas. And it grew, and we were reaching all kinds of people. If you know anything about Las Vegas, there really are all kinds of people there. And he said the church grew, and um, things were going well. And one day, the board called me in and said... And I'll never forget the words he used here. The board called me in and said, you're bringing in too much transient trash to this church. You're fired. Talk about a bunch of church spinners. Listen, the morality of the best of us in this room is no more than transient trash in God's eyes. He told the story in such a way that it was clear he was owning it. It was a chapter in his life. It was nostalgic, the pain from an old wound. But the anger was gone. He was glad for the Genesis week God brought out of that chaotic chapter in his life. Because he knew that I knew today that church is the largest church in the Las Vegas Valley with over 20,000 members. Maybe you're tired of spinning. Maybe it's time to come clean and admit the uglier parts of the story. Maybe it's time to own up to who you are and where you've been. Maybe it's time to clear up some things with God and with others. Just maybe. It's time for a brand new you. And you can start 
by asking God to create a Genesis week out of the chaos of your life.